Content warning for religion, blasphemy, Lovecraftian evil gods, and the constant destruction of civilizations. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. above his head was quiet for a time, then it spoke, spitting out the words, I am God. More precisely, I am what the inhabitants of this city used to call God. Siddhartha thought he had detected lament in the crab's voice. I see. For a god, you have a very peculiar shape. The god on the sliding rail seemed to laugh at that. Is there a preordained shape or role for a god? No. For it is a fact that depending on the world in which they manifest, gods take on many forms. They may be benevolent beings, made of kindness and mercy, or a high-tech machine or an incubator. They can even take on the form of a financial organization. In the ruins of Tokyo, two ancient enemies will battle it out to determine the fate of the entire universe. Both have been augmented with cybernetic implants and energy weapons, and both are more than prepared to kill. In one corner, Siddhartha, the Awakened One, founder of Buddhism. In the other, Jesus of Nazareth, chief operative of the extra-dimensional being known as Maitreya, a being bent on the complete and utter annihilation of humanity. This is 10 billion days and 100 billion nights. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe, the show where we look at pulp novels from the famous The Obscure. I'm Philip, and with me as always is Adam. Hello. Uh, today we're branching out a bit. One problem with the show, with the subject matter we chose, is that most of the authors are going to be white guys. And in fact, in 18 episodes, we have yet to feature a work by a woman or a person of color. That was our mistake. Um, although most pulp stories were the products of white men, not all of them were, by far, and we've been neglectful of a wide variety of that's out there. Uh, We'll be making more of an effort in the future in this regard, starting with this episode, where we're looking at a book from a Japanese author, Ryu Mitsuse, uh, 1967's 10 Billion Days and 100 Billion Nights. Uh, this is a weird one, folks. Uh, that opening to the show is a thing that actually happens in the book. <laughs> Jesus fights Buddha, yep. and they're cyborgs. It's in the yep. ruins of in Tokyo. In the future. Yeah. Uh, you might be thinking, hey, that sounds like anime. Uh, we certainly did, and uh, because neither Adam or I know anything about anime, really, uh, we've recruited our friend Ing to join us in today's discussion. Hello. Hello, Ing. Hi. I greatly appreciate being invited to join this. I love the podcast, and I'm only afraid that I am so willfully 
unqualified <laughs> to comment on well, this. You know more than we do, so uh, I think I think everybody's woefully unprepared yes. to comment on this but one. You know more about anime than this I is do. A, than... This is a strange book. So yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, I first came across this uh, book via Twitter post. I'm not sure who was the uh, Twitter user did it. It wasn't somebody I follow, but it, it was retweeted into my timeline. And they mentioned a scene where Jesus and Buddha duke it out in the future. They also mentioned them having mech suits, which isn't strictly accurate. They're cyborgs, but not in like giant robots or anything. Uh, still, this description immediately jumped out at me as... Well, Neon Genesis Evangelion, a show that I only know by reputation. Uh, I believe right. that's coming to Netflix this month, so we're timing this well. Oh, is this the long-awaited uh, <laughs> uh, arrival of Neon Genesis Evangelion? So yes. I, I guess, first of all, I, uh, I'll ask, what did everybody think of this novel? Like, just first opening thoughts, I guess. Weird. I, yeah, I'm going to echo what I saw appears to be a common thing on a lot of reviews, which is I'm not sure what exactly to think about it or how I feel about it. It is a very dense and in some ways very abstract work. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's not a story in the conventional... Well, it, I mean, it is, but it's not a conventional story at all like so much of it is just gigantic time leaps and then they don't really explain what's going on it's just a series of like like bewildering scenes in some ways like they'll explain things that we're not particularly curious about about like the science behind it but meanwhile you're like okay but What's going on in this dead city? Why are they on another planet all of a sudden? There'll be so many bizarre questions about what's going on. And literally the characters are, you know, the most enlightened prophets of mankind. They don't seem to know what the hell's going on either, basically. I think that's part of the point, but yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of combination of, as you said, actually, a jargon and concepts from philosophy and religion and spiritualism alongside theoretical scientific terms or honestly technobabble. Right. Yeah. And one thing that I noticed that could be difficult is actually kind of parsing out what's supposed to be a metaphorical description and what is literal. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. You know, which like it... to be fair may be a problem of just translate of its translation into English. Yeah. And a cultural thing too, probably. Well, right. no, I was wondering, I've read, uh, recently I read uh, Sixin Liu's uh, book, uh, or his trilogy, rather, uh, The Three Body Problem is the first book, and uh, it is, of course, it was written in Chinese and then translated into English, and the translator, Ken Liu, no relation, uh, he said, um, you know, basically, I didn't try to translate it as elegantly and smoothly as I could, I tried to capture some of the underlying sense, which made it a little maybe clunky it might feel a little weird and cold and alien in english um but i liked that sensibility and that's what i tried to get across and i think there's some of the same in this book like we're like i think it's a pretty detached book um mm -hmm. the author uh, mentions a bunch of uh like uh ryo mitsuse he mentions a lot of uh, golden age sci-fi people uh, who inspired him, and they were all kind of detached and dry, and like Western Golden Age sci-fi guys, like uh, yeah. Asimov and, and Clark and people. Um, oh, uh, speaking of uh, 
Arthur C. Or Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, mm-hmm. This really reminded me of 2001: Space Odyssey, which came out the year after this came out. Yeah. 2001 was based on Clarke's some of Clarke's earlier short stories, so any cited Clark as an influence, so it's possible that he was drawing on those stories and they sort of coalesced into a similar end. But it is interesting. It, it feels like a very Japanese version of that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, since Clark was mentioned, um, one thing uh, Mitsuse might have been referencing was Childhood's End, which is an Arthur C. Clark story, which does predate uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. It ha- It's somewhat similar I believe, I actually, I, I honestly can't even remember if I've read that or not. I've read about it so much that I can't even remember if I've actually read the story itself. But it's the same kind of thing about, like, as a, it, it, it was one of the stories that essentially inspired 2001 A Space Odyssey of, you know, mankind being elevated from the past and then into the future. Um, so that was clearly a, 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 an inspiration for... And it say. shares a theme of alien beings either posing as or being mistaken for having religious significance. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, basically, yeah. Uh, uh, I guess we could give away the overall plot to this book. Oh, well, uh, Lovecraft is also cited at one thing, which oh, yeah, you that, can that kind of see as well. Yeah. Did he actually reference Lovecraft? I, I didn't catch it's that. It's mentioned in the afterword, right. I believe, as examples. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the uh, the alien unknowable god sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah a hundred percent yeah um so yeah this takes sort of the opposite track of 2001 in some ways in that the uh alien involvement here is malevolent i mean these these people are trying to dis- or these aliens are trying to destroy humanity or cause us to go in a bad direction mm-hmm. and they're doing that by influencing our uh religious uh icons and things so uh Jesus is um, uh, basically went mad from exposure to one of these beings, and um, uh, Siddhartha, who's uh, Buddha, um, sort of interacted with them and, and absorbed some of their uh, um, teachings, but also sort of moved against them. So Siddhartha is more of a uh, uh, positive character in this book, and Jesus is more of a just yeah. evil, crazy Jesus guy. is straight up the antagonist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's clear that out. Jesus is, if anything, the sort of image I got from him was kind of like the street preacher assassin from Johnny Mnemonic. He's not even that, like, passionately religious in some ways. I mean, he's got his mission, but he doesn't, you know, well, he talks about, oh, the end of the world and everything. But, I mean, there's a, in the scene, they play, they show the scene where, you know, the Roman centurions grab him to crucify him. And he's basically, and he says, ow, you're hurting me, which is not something I would ever imagine Jesus ever saying, basically. Yeah, he's not described in very flattering terms at all. Like, he's he's ugly, he's small, he's his eyes are tiny. Well, mine are too, but anyway. Yeah. Um, he's got, um, uh crust on his teeth like it's really repulsive mm-hmm. like uh this guy's like definitely not uh he's described as charismatic in a way by pilot who's the narrator Restart. of that section but uh yeah uh he's definitely not the traditional view of jesus no which also surprised me a bit because um though it obviously took liberties the depictions of Plato and uh, Siddhartha were 
were recognizable. Mm-hmm. They it felt like a historical fiction sort of thing, but Jesus just about every like they there were sort of stories that could say okay these weren't recorded right. tales of Buddha or Plato but these are things that you could in a historical yeah. fiction say believably happened to them if you wanted to write a thing yeah, about I mean, he makes... historical figures interacting with aliens when it comes to Jesus's right. chapter not only is the He's whole not... thing not told from Jesus's point of view at departure it's told from Pilate's but the right. events of the of fairly major event are completely contradictory to as it's recorded in history and the religion. Yeah, uh, Judas is is a prophet who only met Jesus once, and he had yeah, nothing he, to do with turning him in. Yeah, he's a scal- He's an astrologer, apparently, yeah. called by Pilate to opine on a natural phenomenon similar to northern lights that start to appear when they're crucifying Jesus. Yeah. And I mean, the the scene, like I say, they do show the scene of him being, you know, taken, which would have, you know, biblically be the Garden of Gethsemane, which they, they, there's no evidence that that's what's happening until suddenly they're dragging him away. And I'm like, oh, this is the, this is the big moment. There's no buildup to that at all. It's just like they encounter yeah. this guy who's preaching to a handful of people and being a bit weird, basically. And, and, and despite having literal contact with godlike entities, he feels like he doesn't really know what he's talking about the way <laughs> Katama does, um, or Siddhartha does, I guess you'd call him. Um, it's it's very strange the way they, they handle this. And it, I, I think he was very definitely trying to be irreverent, um, Brio Satsumi. Don't, don't you think? Um, <clears throat> it could, and also I think there is, and I've got to do some generalization, some of which may came of, as unfair, but so just take with the salt that this is a Westerner commenting on it. It does. There is also a sense in a lot of Japanese media of looking upon stuff like Christianity specifically from an outsider perspective. Mm-hmm. And in Japanese fiction, you are more likely to see a sort of view of Christianity actually as more less of what like Westerners recall it. It's like Westerners if you describe what is. Christianity, like, they would probably talk about, like, the importance of peace, forgiveness, and that. More often in a Japanese perspective, it can be said there, well, it's a religion that is really obsessed with death, Mm. and there is a a lot of death imagery and a focus on the apocalypse and the end of the world. Right. That definitely comes across, yes. Yeah, so... That's the... um... That's the defining thing that separates the two philosophically in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is obsessed with the world having an end, with there being a judgment and all this stuff, and this really disturbs other characters, Pilate and especially Pilate's um, uh, advisor, Sient, or Kent, uh, who is an yeah. original character Saint. to this Saint. book. Yeah. Saint, yeah. He's a um, uh sort of semi like not a viewpoint character pilots a viewpoint character this section but he's he has a lot of uh agency in this in that chapter right um and he's really disturbed by what jesus has to say like um but it also uh within the context of this book jesus is also right he's just kind of crazy at the same time yeah well the, big the division... world does have an end because his his uh the one who influenced him the one who you know Maitreya, we'll say, is uh, the villain of the piece, I guess, also called She, uh, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that later, um, is um, uh, 
actively trying to destroy humanity and cause the heat death of the universe and all this stuff. And yeah. so there is a finality. Like, God is trying to destroy everything. Um, yeah. Siddhartha is trying to fight against it, but he's also, you know, like, just factually wrong about how the, about uh, the world not being uh, cyclical as um, it is in Hindu right. Hinduism and Buddhism. Yeah, that's sort of the crucial breakdown, I think, is that you had the guy who's saying it's going to be a linear time and there's going to be an end of the world and a revelation and everything versus uh, the one who's, you know, the, the more Eastern viewpoint of cyclical, uh, endlessly repeating uh, struggle and also the fact that Gautama is the one, or Siddhartha, I keep calling him Gautama, but he's called Siddhartha in the book. Uh, he's able to um, <clears throat> sort of see past, he's told early on, uh, you know, he's taken up to this battle where, you know, they're ba battling the evil Asuras, which are demonic entities. Um, and then he immediately sort of goes to talk to them and realizes they're not that bad. <laughs> and in fact, become uh, protagonist. Asura, the Asura, who is the lead uh, the lead of the Asuras, becomes one of the protagonists of the book, in fact. Uh, and she's up. presented as an adolescent girl, which again, seems very anime to me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I... <laughs> It said adolescent, but it also gave like a depiction of sort of tomboyish. Yeah, and that it's, yeah. it described her also as kind of uh, androgynous in some categories. Yeah, and they call her it's... the king of the Asuras. Like they yeah. still keep calling her the so, king. So yeah. So there, again, there's another very anime esque thing to show up. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's weird how um, every time you know you meet this higher being. Uh, and of course, it starts with the with you know Siddhartha being the main character, and you're like, okay, well they'll be able to explain what's going on, and they're just like, no, I have no idea, and what? Why don't you explain it to me? And th sh then he meets Asura, and Asura's like, okay, well I kind of know what's going on, but then you get a lot of viewpoint of Asura, and she doesn't seem to know what's going on either. Like she's just as lost as anyone else in some ways, um, even though she's like a million year old entity doing this endless battle, <laughs> as I understand it. Um, it can be a little hard to tell what's going on some of the time in this book, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it start. The first main character is a um, uh, pre-human, some sort of amphibious creature, mm -hmm. and we we follow its hunting habits and things. And it it gets involved in uh, aliens too, but it doesn't understand what's going on remotely. Yeah, I believe that amphibious creature at the beginning was Asura, um, because I she... thought it was Siddhartha. Okay, I'm. I was. I was a little confused there. Well, the final chapter is from Asura's point of view, and she starts describing. Oh, I remember how much simpler it was when I was like living in the ancient ocean and everything like that. Oh, and okay. The creature in that chapter, yeah, it sounds like a fish. But then when you, as they describe it, they describe it having shoulders and sounding a bit more humanoid as it goes on. Anyway, yeah, it has a blowhole as well. Yeah, well, it, it it I it was clearly uplifted by the alien influence into a yeah. more intelligent being, basically. And that, this yeah. may be my reading into it, but I was actually a bit uh, surprised how kind of I guess unintentionally accurate it's sort of if you squinted fit the description of Tetaliac Rosier, which is the um, prehistoric not fish fossil that's found that is the earliest land-dwelling organism or earliest land-dwelling vertebrate oh okay oh, okay and it is the black lagoon <laughs> um 
it's Chark just said it's hard to place because it honestly looks like a combination between like a crocodile, an amphibian, and a fish. Huh. Because it's still it has characteristics that we associate greatly with all three of those. Hmm. When was and it, it really is, Do you know? Uh fairly recently actually, in oh, okay. uh, the two okay. thousands. Okay, so he wouldn't but, have known about uh, it. No, but where I thought for where it came out there is that the existence of Titaliac Rosier or a creature like it was predicted like much earlier and in fact it was they had specifically gone out looking for a fossil for it to confirm it. Okay. And there's actually a good story, uh I believe it's talked about in the book, uh the scientific book Your Inner Fish. And because they talk about how it was a triumph of basically science there because it, it had made a prediction that it, about this period in evolution history there should be a creature like this and they went out to mm. the strata where they should where there was a good chance to get fossils and that would associate with that geological period and dug and found a fish like that. Mm. Okay. Which is interesting but irrelevant to this. I just thought it was fun. Oh no, that's, no that... that's... Yeah, as 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 Phil says that like that's interesting because it's mentioned in the book, but it's not. <laughs> it wasn't something he could have known about technically, but you know he sort of he he did the 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 pseudoscientific uh, idea of you know oh ancient ast- aliens came down and and uplifted life forms into eventually humanity, which is the big theme of the book. Uh, you've got all the. Uh, Aliens. Now, I mean, at this, we are but told these are malevolent aliens specifically. Well, yeah, but we're eventually told there was a good alien god-like yeah, um, being who was trying to yes, help there, us. Yes, there is a who good is, alien. Just who's, an impotent. Yeah, yeah he's not right. very good at it. Yeah. Every um, time, every everyone who who wants to do good in this is it just fails and goes nowhere. It's, <laughs> it's a very bleak book. Yes. Stuff. Yeah, it is a very depressing book. I should. I wonder if. The trigger warnings or the content warnings at the beginning are just going to list just just depressiveness, <laughs> constant destruction of civilizations. Well, yeah, I mean, just content warning for just utter hopelessness. <laughs> well, I mean, well, that's the th- there is the factor here, and again, this ties into what I think is the big theme of the book, or, or one of the big themes, which is the uh, you know from an Eastern perspective, Hinduist or Buddhist, Hindu or Buddhist, um, you've got. Um, the idea of constant uh, creation and destruction of the universe uh, in Buddhist uh, Buddhism, as I understand it, I am in no way an expert on Buddhism. Uh, I know a tiny bit about it, so please forgive me if I get something wrong. But I, I know that, for instance, um, the Maitreya, and I'll, I'll mention this here because Maitreya is a big factor in the story, uh, is supposed to be uh, this this uh, essentially, you know, you could call it the Buddhist Messiah. It's the Buddhist who is Buddha who is yet to come, uh, who's going to come down and and uh, and Jesus in the book worships Maitreya because he represents kind of a messianic end of the world type figure. Um, but <clears throat> uh, whereas uh, the traditional Buddha's understanding is that the universe is constantly being created and destroyed over the course of thousands of millions of years. Um, so even though the universe is doomed to be destroyed, you could say, well, yeah, from, from an Eastern perspective, it's actually okay because it'll get recreated again. Um, and he, he almost alludes to that with, at the very end, you know, talking about these giant Lovecraftian entities are going, well, that was an interesting experiment we just did with this universe. You know, shall we try again? <laughs> um, yeah. 
Like, which is where I said where the sort of Lovecraftian thing and both look oddly both Lovecraftian and very um, Clarkian comes up both with the thing that just all of existence is effectively a plaything or experiment done by these vastly cosmic beings on a completely different scale and just of how potentially meaningless all of human existence was for it. Right. But yeah, like I say, I mean, I, I do believe that is something that pops up over, over and over again in Hinduism and uh, Buddhism. I, I'd always heard it explained that, you know, Hinduism arose at a time somewhere around, you know, a thousand years BC, uh, 800 years BC. Uh, well, I mean, it had been around sort of before that, but it, you know, it started to take on its more um, intellectual heritage at that time when, um, you know, there was a sense of, they'd looked at the history up to the Vedic, uh, the Vedic people of India had sort of looked at their history up to that point and seen a constant series of cycles and kind of gone, is this all there is? You know, they'd been conquerors who swept into India, but then they, you know, they took over India and over the next few thousand years, it was kind of, well, we keep conquering and then falling back and conquer and, and, and taking on this attitude of, you know, there are endless cycles. Is there a way out of these endless cycles? So that started to be incorporated. And there's, you know, from a Western perspective, I think it kind of feels a bit fatalistic and as you say, depressing, but I'm not sure it's actually meant to be that way. And I think that might be something that we're taking, we're reading into the book that isn't necessarily meant to be there, but I don't I know. I think it's also presenting some different perspectives on it because definitely Jesus in it is both goes to fanaticism and then seemingly like nihilism and depression over it when he gets to the end. Right. They have the sort of curiosity and kind of optimism that Siddhartha and Plato have mm -hmm. and just sort of the constant defiance and determination Asura has. And then we also have Plato, uh, not, sorry, not Plato, uh, Pilate, Pilate, whose general reaction to it is that he hears everything that Jesus says and pretty much comes to it, that that is certainly interesting, but it has absolutely no impact on human life <laughs> because it's at such a different scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, cool, this doesn't affect my life at all. <laughs> Sees him. And yes. I've and I've seen actually comments saying that in some way Pilot is the most practical and wisest there for not falling into being obsessed with this because he's right, there's nothing he can do about it, and he's gonna die way before this becomes an issue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean it's almost it's almost of a theme of, you know, don't look too hard for spiritual knowledge or you'll become a crazy cyborg battling in the ruins of Tokyo thousands of years past. Just like Lovecraft intended. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Now, but, um, um, the, the idea of the two gods, uh, like a good god and an evil god, is very Gnostic in some mm -hmm. ways. Right. Um, the Gnosticism was an early Christian heresy that uh, posited that the, uh, the god of the Old Testament was evil. Um, right. an evil false god called the Demiurge who created matter and uh, the good god is the god of souls um, and uh, Jesus came down to preach for the god of you know spiritual matters over the physical world but it was all sort of secret and hush hush um, right so it sort of fits that but Jesus is in this case with the evil god so yeah the Gnosticism being the point of 
you know, if you if you uh, if you join us, we'll tell you the secrets of the universe, which are that you know the the people in control are not good. You know, the the demiurge, as I believe he's called, is the yeah. the powerful evil god, and and it's the real god is somewhere else, and he's trying to help us. Which is this is this this book actually kind of reverses because the really powerful god is the malevolent one, and the one yeah. who's sort of more on the ground is <laughs> is good, but he's not very helpful, basically. Yeah, he's trying his best, but yeah, he he's admits that yeah, I didn't do a very good job. <laughs> he's trying his best, but it's not much. No, yeah. it isn't. Because specifically it's the thing, any truths that he tell he tells, if it's too blatant and too helpful, they will the evil gods will do what they did to Atlantis and basically wipe it off the earth right. to in a cover up attempt and just scour anything from that so that won't be useful. And that's pretty much what the view we get in the chapter where Plato has a flashback to possibly a previous reincarnation of himself where he was a sage in Atlantis mm-hmm. and it was wiped out by, I it's, I think it's ambiguous, but either volcanic activity or possibly orbital bombardment. Yeah, that was... And also that- half the city gets uh, sort of put into like a space dimension like it's yeah. weird yeah well, later later they talk about near the end they get sucked up into this thing where you're sucked into two-dimensional space uh and you could be trapped in this energy field right. forever. and i think they may have been he may have been implying that that's what happened to atlantis right uh, so if the good god is too blatant anyone he helps is just going to be effectively killed via murder spite smiting so right. his only method is to try to subtly put it in there, but then he also says every attempt that he tried to do that mm-hmm. got subverted back to the evil god's will, right. and under the implication that's what happened with Buddhism and Christianity that he might have had a hand in forming and tried mm-hmm. to seed helpful ideas there, but they just got corrupted back into serving the evil will. Yeah, it's very down on religion, this book, <laughs> for sure. There's There's definitely came out of, I would say, the post-World War II era where, you know, there's a, religion's almost this weird thing that the people writing didn't understand at all and just saw as this weird backwards thing that you, you know, that we were going to move away from almost. Um, uh, whether- yeah, again, this comes from a, a Japanese perspective, which, uh, from what I've read in looking, researching this, um, uh, at least uh, Ryu uh, might have seen it as similar to uh, the way Pontius Pilate sees religion in the Roman society as, like, just window dressing. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that would be a good way that I've heard that I've heard religion sort of seen in Japan, that it has a very practical view for it. There was, and I forgive if this comes off as racist, uh, but I had heard this in world religion class. This came from my professor, Dr. Koch who had said that the saying is that a Japanese person is Shintoist up to, like, childhood to adulthood, Confucian when it comes to business, a Christian when they marry, and Buddhist when they die. Okay. <laughs> With Under the idea that there are these basically various religious views and philosophies, and all of them have an impact on the culture, and it is kind of seen that it's kind of perfectly normal to either appropriate what you will from them or move between the different worldviews. Right. Mm-hmm. I know that in uh, in China, they, you know, they, they kind of, the three 
big ones, which were Buddhism, Confucianism, and and Taoism, kind of, you know, they didn't, they never really had a big uh, struggle for domination quite the same way that uh, we saw some of the religions clashing in the West. And it's always kind of felt like, yeah, we'll just, oh, that's kind of a neat idea. Like Taoism definitely influenced Buddhism in China, uh, even though they were specifically supposed to be, you know, no, don't take any other gods. Uh, and they just said, yeah, well, we're basically folding in all of our sort of folk beliefs into Buddhism as well. And, you know, and, and generally speaking... Uh, now, that's not to say that there wasn't religious opposition or conflict, because there definitely hmm. was, and in some senses, very violent right. ones as well. It just has... For some, it seems just a bit different from the Western outlook, where I think just really in the West, kind of one religion gained an absolute dominance, mm -hmm. and then later schismed. Where in the East, it definitely became more of a thing that there had to be kind of at least some level of coexistence formed. Right, but then let's also acknowledge that um, there are cults in Asia and Japan. Um, yes, like and in fact, and they there have... are deeply devout people of uh, any of the religions I said. Sure, there it's just not seen as like in certain places in America or where it would be ubiquitous that somebody has a very strong religious identity. Right to a specific religious sect. Well, well. I, I, my understanding is that in the wake of World War II, that was a big thing. And this is, of course, uh, the, er, uh, the, the era that Ryo Mitsutsu is coming out of. He even specifically says, I was raised as an imperial, you know, I grew up in imperial Japan. And then after World War II, they very explicitly kind of broke down the imperial structure. Like, their, their emperor was the god on Earth in Japan. Uh, Imperial Japan. And uh, after World War II, they kind of had to to defray that a bit. I've heard partly because there was a fear of, you know, well, they're going to fight on fanatically and until they all kill themselves because that's, quote, you know, that's supposedly the Japanese way because they had, you know, kamikaze and, and seppuku and all that stuff. Uh, whether that was exaggerated by Westerners or a real legitimate possibility, I don't know. But I think that if you're coming into that World War II malaise in Japan, you've definitely got um, a sense of, well, we had a god on Earth, and he failed, and Japan has been radically transformed in that time. Uh, it's hard not to see that mentality seeping into the book, right? You know, we, we right. had a and god, and it is and also failed. worth pointing out in this context that the concept of the Japanese emperor as an actual divine being is not something that's actually a consistent idea throughout the eras of Japan. And in wartime, Japan was closer to being sort of an idea that was brought back as part of the fascist government movement. Okay. Actually... So, so this is also a result of seeing that, like, well, our country just came out of a period to where, yeah, religion was used as part of a thing to control the masses. And it didn't turn out well for us. Huh. Okay, I didn't I didn't realize that that had been but I that's 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 interesting. I didn't realize it had kind of been revived in the lead up to World War II, the way you're saying that's, that's... Yeah, there were there were times in Field of Japan where the emperor was literally just a figurehead who was kept in a shack. Right. <laughs> yes. Which I'm not exaggerating, look it up. It is actually a very interesting history of how the importance 
an influence of the empire has waxed and waned throughout the different Japanese eras. Hmm. Well, there you go. Well, I do want to talk uh, a bit about more about that, but uh, just quickly, let's jump over because as uh, Phil was pointing out, uh, let's just talk quickly about Atlantis. Uh, we talked about it in our last two shows, which were about um, uh, the Illuminatus trilogy. And as Phil's pointed out, that's actually uh, that has actually a common thread in the next few books we're talking about. Uh, Atlantis keeps uh, popping up. Not the up next again. one. We're going to skip it for one one episode and then get back right. to it. Yeah. Oh, well, and. I would be remiss of pointing out that one thing I immediately saw from reading this book is that under the idea of, well, this influenced a lot of anime, when I came to the Atlantis thing, it was thing ah, this is where that came from. Oh, okay. Where this was a big influence because Atlantis and the idea of ancient aliens comes up a lot in anime. Oh, really? Really? Yes. Okay, that's it. Well, let's talk about that in a second, but I just wanted to go to Phil, because let's let's actually talk about the historical Atlantis, since that is now up. Uh, we didn't yeah. really specifically mention it in the Illuminatus one, but Phil, uh, just talk, you know, Plato, of course, is linked to Atlantis, so... Um, uh, he came up with it. Right. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's what I... Like, he's the first person we have recorded who ever talked about it, mm -hmm. uh, despite what a lot of conspiracy theories would have you believe. Uh... <laughs> Plato was the first to talk about it. Uh, he claimed in his story, which again is just a story, he wrote it as fiction for as a thought experiment, basically. But mm -hmm. um, he said his, his grandfather had uh, learned from uh, Egyptian uh, scholars and pharaohs that uh, about the secret history of, of a continent that sank. Um, and he gave all this detail about it. Um, Again, it's it's uh, it. This is from uh, Plato's. Um, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly. Uh, Timaeus and uh, Cratius. Right, Cratius. I think. Cratius. Oh, okay, I, I, I saw Cratius. But yes, so, but yeah, it was founded by uh, by Plato, like the whole like, the the whole myth of Atlantis to make his what was what exactly was the point he was making by creating atlantis uh, right i've actually only read that's the relevant atlantis section of that particular book so i don't know what the wider point was right but like he uh, i do know it was sort of like a swiftian allegory i remember right, that yeah. and i believe it was more or less on the idea of the it was tied into his ideas on creating a perfect state because, mm -hmm. you know, he wrote about, like, right, the his Republic. ideas of the Republic and having, like, a philosopher king and everything, and finding some balance between, kind of, practicality and ethics and all that, and Atlantis was supposed to, in some ways, be an example of, oh, here's people who were so advanced, but because of bad politics, they were destroyed by within and by war without. Right. Yeah, it's but I mean, searching for Atlantis is like trying to search for Plato's cave. You know, it's yeah, it's an allegory. It's not a real thing he was talking about. Right. No, and he even presented it as here's a thing I'm making up to illustrate a point. Right. He doesn't and quite say I've... that, as far as I know. But yeah, uh, maybe he should have because it's caused a lot of problems. <laughs> what I found mm -hmm. interesting in this book that I liked is that this is one of the few ones that goes into Atlantis as a real place that addresses that because it talks about, yes, Plato basically found an alien artifact that gave him a flashback to his past life on Atlantis and all. 
and mentioned, later people would say that Plato's writings on Atlantis were just metaphor and allegory, but this is what really happened. <laughs> right. Well, you have to, of course, but at least, yeah, as you say, he acknowledges that it's like it was a fantasy. Didn't you say, Phil, there was a, one that was parodying it with Meropius? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Meropius. It was created by uh, Theopompus. Uh, I I think he had another, like, uh, a title, but I, I just remember his first name, Theopompus. Um, a Greek philosopher from later on, he came up with a, um, uh, just parodying Atlantis, basically. Um, it's a, a vast continent beyond the edge of the world called uh, Meropis. Uh, that's uh, so large it makes Af uh, Africa, Europe, and Asia look like tiny islands. Uh, and it's yeah. populated by... Uh, uh, warriors and uh that are 10 feet tall and they went out and conquered the world but uh were stopped by hyperborea right um and uh all this was communicated uh to uh king king midas by a centaur so yeah just sort of <laughs> taking every every aspect of the plato story and making it more ridiculous uh right. unfortunately it's been mostly lost this we just have it in fragments so the, mm. the actual work it's from is lost but what I just said is basically well, it. It's funny because the the way you described it, it almost, in some ways, you could fit it into this book, 100, 10 billion days and 100 billion nights, uh, because it is, you know, you could say the galactic world made, uh, you know, Africa and Asia seem like small yeah. islands mm -hmm. if you wanted to stretch it. But of course, that guy was just being satirical. But um, yeah. But uh, anyway, let's talk uh, anime. Uh, so, Ing, you were... You, sure. We, as as we said, uh, I can't help just from basically hearing the premise, as Phil said, when I hear about this, I think, you know, this sounds a lot like Neon Genesis Evangelion in some ways. It and does in some ways, but it is in tone actually really different. Okay. Like, both are kind of very inaccurate on the portrayal of Christianity and Abrahamic religions, but Neon Genesis Evangelion kind of was more of shifting through those mythologies and Gnosticism specifically, kind of looking for cool imagery by the creator's own account. That's why there's a lot of it there. Mm. It's just that it was something that would be weird and foreign -y to the intended Japanese audience mm. while still having like a connection to a real thing so it would come off as profound. Right. But yeah, there wasn't like... a terribly greater understanding but it was more of like picking imagery from that to have fun with that and this uh like what you do with the in our media with japanese culture all the time right yeah what we do with a lot there yeah yeah exactly we we put uh, in you know sort of I, that's one thing i kind of one of my favorite things about anime and japanese media is whenever america specifically is depicted or anything like very intrinsically american or a European that I recognize as basically something native to my culture because it is just kind of weirdly fascinating and perversely satisfying seeing just another culture treating one I'm familiar with the same way that we kind of treat the East. Right. Well, and that sort of exo exoticism of it. Yeah. I well, it, I forget what anime it is, because I've only seen clips of it, but it is a slice-of-life one, but pretty much the joke is that a teacher, their teacher had spent the summer or previous year in Hawaii, 
and he comes back like wearing a Hawaiian shirt and a huge cowboy hat and using right. Americisms like "Howdy, y'all." Mm-hmm. Yeah, an American weeaboo, a Japanese version of a weeaboo. <laughs> yeah, there is a big kind of fascination in anime in a lot of anime with um, ancient alien conspiracies that show up a lot. So Atlantis props oh. up pops up a lot too. Okay. In various ways. So there was like a lot of seeding of that and Wh- it's which, easy to... which which anime have featured things like that specifically? Uh there's a number, like it comes up just in the background often. Um like not specifically done it, but there's sort of some touches upon it, especially with a lost ancient civilization shows up in the backstory of uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Although, and this is one Phil would like, they're also uh, ancient vampi- an ancient species of vampires. <laughs> because why not? And we're also... Th- and again, in, for it's a thing, mankind's interaction with these greatly powerful beings that could not go in the sunlight when they had interactions with them, they became the stories of gods and demons. So there's another one of that idea there that mankind's religion is kind of a misunderstanding of an alien, even if in this case it was terrestrial in origin, but a non-human influence that they misattributed to. Hmm. Uh, Uh, It should be noted this book, uh, 10 Billion Days and 100 Billion Nights, was adapted into a manga in uh, 77, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's never been translated into English, so we weren't able to you know, find it or anything. A lot of uh, anime that deals with aliens will mention upon it, and we'll also touch on other sort of things in UFOlogy, hmm. like the Eastern Island Heads and the Pyramids and those sort of things. The comedy series Sergeant Frog uses absolutely all of them, and hmm. in fact, and in sort did a sort of parody episode where they went finding all the artifacts from ancient aliens left on Earth, only to find that effectively, rather than any big conspiracy or that, they were all theme park attractions from a race (laughs) of alien giants that had previously turned uh, Earth into their equivalent of the vacant lot you hold a county fair at. (laughs) (laughs) Like the pyramids were actually an ancient alien haunted house. The eastern island heads have a switch at the bottom that causes them to bop up and down because it's a giant <laughs> whack-a-mole game. And just a bunch of stuff like that. Okay. Well, there you go. That's funny because I don't associate all that kind of weird pseudoscience stuff with, you know, the east. I mean, I associate it with westerners, you know, looking at the east and going, "Ooh, this is all part of... You know, they were Atlantis, and they knew the secret... No, there is a fascination in Japanese sci-fi with, Ameri- with I guess, what would be called American UFOlogy hmm. as well, and has adapted a lot of it. In some cases, more so than the native areas that it's got from. Like, uh, there's a creature, a cryptid alien sighting called the Flatwoods Monster. Yeah, I know of, this uh, one. Yeah, that uh, people who know ufology recognize it, but it's not popular in American pop culture, but it's instantly recognizable in Japanese pop culture as a stock alien hmm. design. Okay. Hmm. Well, uh, let's we're we're getting uh, close to uh, to the end here, but let's just quickly uh, one more thing to link to anime is cyborgs. 
because yeah. they like them the cyborgs in anime. And it's really interesting that this book is talking about cyborgs in 1967, uh, when, I mean, the concept existed, but you don't associate them with sci-fi at that early juncture, I uh, would say. Well, Doctor Who had the Cybermen uh, in the, the late 60s. That is true. Um, but And that, that's sort of... Uh, the Cybermen originally were... Uh, they, their climate was having problems, so they adapted their bodies slowly to having electronic equipment and stuff, and eventually right. they became all robotic. Um, in, in this case... Which it, it, actually isn't all that different from sort of the purpose of... And, uh, cyborgs in this book either right yeah yeah, yeah. um well, in this case they, they really feel like battle cyborgs like they right. have like weapon uh targeting systems in their head and they have uh um energy weapons antenna. coming out of their arms and things yeah yeah what i was gonna say is what's interesting is that for being so early is that this is really kind of a fallout incomplete form of what we would see as, like, Japanese cyberpunk cyborgs. Yeah, yeah. They're not, like, what you would associate with earlier pulp thing of being very clunky, or, like, the Cybermen, where they're kind of encased in shells as, mm -hmm. like, basically mobile iron lungs. They're very sophisticated. A lot of the stuff is miniaturized and concealed within, like, a humanoid form. There's yeah. a lot of, basically, transformations of limbs and openings of panels to release things. yeah. It's, it's, and it's not surprising in hindsight that Ghost in the Shell was influenced by this. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's he wrote very the, modern. Uh, he wrote commentary in the, in yeah. the edition we had. Yeah, yeah it's a it, ver very modern uh, take on Cyborg. Like, it's what you would think of if you were writing one nowadays, or at the very least in the 90s. So I I think it's, it's hard not to think that that was a huge inspiration for all the, you know, Ghost in the Shell and Battle Angel yeah. Alita and that kind of stuff. It is also one that, I have to say, it comes up in anime a lot, The idea, for some reason, just the idea that aliens have, like, natural beam weaponry. <laughs> and it comes up, it's like, this isn't a completely alien idea, and we see, again, we'll see it in things like in Dragon Ball, where it's not technology, but it is supposed to be, like, a Kai attack. So mm. it's like they're focusing their life force. It's not just aliens that can do it, but it seems to be the idea that like, humans train at it, but a ton of aliens seem to naturally be able to do it. And right. It comes up in other anime series, like, for no good specific reason. It's a talent the alien frogs and Sergeant Frog have. <laughs> and it really does seem... And I kind of have to say that it seems to be tied into this specifically, that we just have a battle over a whole planet between Jesus and, and Buddha just firing basically palm beams mm -hmm. and missiles at each other and shooting fireballs at each other. Right. And I mean, if you remember, they talk about at one point, um, I can't remember who, which one it is, but some of them, I think it's Maitreya, uh, launches a psychic attack on them in the book. Um, oh, right. And that felt very anime as well. Kind of this. Oh, uh, there's also a sequence, which we alluded to in the, um, uh, opening text that I read from the book. Um, where there's a uh, city full of people in, in chambers that are living in a virtual reality. Right, and they're... Yeah, it's very similar to The Matrix, but it's also yeah. the weird idea that this is one of the methods humanity has used to adapt to the impending devastations to try to survive it, and in that civilization, they seem to basically keep the 
original organic humans, like, in pods as storage devices to make robot duplicates that are the, like, workforce and citizens. And, but then it's also weird because while they go there, there's a revolt between the ro- there's a revolt of the robots against the Order because they're not real citizens, they're, like, B-class mm-hmm. citizens. Right. Which goes back to uh, when we talked about RUR and stuff like that. Um, has the the robot uprising? But yeah, it's that is. But very it, it seems very cyberpunk, and it's right. It and that by a that's lot. an I and honestly, that's an idea. Like the stuff there that people realizing they're not the real person, and they're just like their memories are programmed and all. Like that's a whole concept for a whole sci-fi thing. We've seen that in like the Matrix and Dark City, and that. But this is just treated almost Gulliver's Travels like, well, this is a weird place we see on our way yeah. to our journey. Yeah, it's pretty it's... much it's just, well, sucks to be them. Yeah. Uh, our prayers are with them, onward and upward. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, wild. They seem how to be many happy. Things... They know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah, it's wild how many of these things they just kind of toss out and and move on, and seemingly other people have now fleshed these all out, you know, on in great detail. Uh, but he was, you know, Mitsuse was just throwing out all these ideas for people yeah, to pick I'll up. Yeah, cover the entire efforts. span of the universe in under 300 pages. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and there's a Somewhat lot of stuff. In structure of the novel, it kind of reminds me almost of just a long short story, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's not, it's, it's, it's as we said, a series of glimpses at, uh, you know, a continuum of of things, but it's almost, you know, it sets up Buddha and Jesus and then almost fast forwards to the end, you know, and you're just, you're just getting the sense of everything that happened. You know what it reminded me a bit of, uh, is, you know, the adventure games like Myst, uh, where you were just sort of exploring the, uh, you know, the ruins left behind and trying to piece together what happened. Yeah, that is a good description of it. And it also has an ending like, you said it goes to the end of the universe, and it's kind of very surreal and open-ended with Asura flashing back to both her origin, possibly as this like, prehistoric fish creature that was uplifted. Mm-hmm. And then it also talks that she, in some, her consciousness becomes like one with the universe as it dies, and her friends are there, and it may be like the start of the next cycle of that sort of thing. And that's the sort of, like, really trippy, open-ended thing that's seen as, like, a what-the-fuck in the West, but is kind of definitely seen as more of an acceptable ending in Japan. Yeah. Well, even then, I mean, the 2001 movie, at least, yeah. that doesn't explain it, sort of, it's very similar in structure. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it right. is explained in the novels, but Kubrick does yeah. have basically a similar ending to that, where you're just left with a lot of imagery and left to figure out what the hell it means on your own. And right. you could also I draw a dir- that in the movie, but yeah, you could also draw a direct link to the endings for Neon Genesis Evangelion, which go in a similar way, including with you know, Evangelion with the world ending, but possibly having a chance to be reborn because it's all in one overmind or oversoul, and of course with the ending of the theatrical version of Akira, which has a very ambiguous ending of possibly yeah. starting with the possible another start of a cycle of destruction and mo- and life and all that right mm. uh, again yeah there's the cycles the cycles of destruction and and rebuilding in akira and and 
<laughs> yeah. That's uh, so. That, uh, I guess we should start wrapping up. Yeah, uh, yeah I guess. Uh, would you? Would either of you recommend this book to somebody? Uh, it would depend on the person. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a hard one. Like it, in the same way, it's hard to say if if it's good or not. It's definitely influential. Yeah, and it is interesting. I found it a quick read. Yeah, yeah. But not. it is also, in some ways, not an easy one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would uh, probably a lot to think about, a lot to to that I had to research afterwards because I yeah. didn't know some of these references. Well, I, and you've yeah. also like I, like I mentioned at the beginning, you know, oh, you see, uh, you know, she kind of references very obliquely. Maybe she was the amphibian at the beginning, but you've kind of you've almost got to reread the whole thing. Uh, to put this st kind of stuff together, you know, there's a lot of, you know, they don't explain the whole thing about them being robots and living in the virtual reality. Like you really have to bring a lot of your own, you know, right. And deduction to be fair, to the whole thing of how all of them survive till the end of time as cyborgs who resurrected them as that, that's only vaguely commented on. Yeah, exactly. And we don't have a, and even though it's per, partially explained we're still not given a good reason why right yeah it just happens oh, yeah i th i thought it was the the good god who was uh, who did that to them no yeah. yeah he did it like it says that it explains he is the person who did that but there's not sort of a reason why he did it yeah it's it's you, you eventually get some of the gaps filled in and can kind of intuit it but at, like it literally just starts and it's like well i don't have a good memory of what's going on but i guess i'm fighting jesus now like it's yeah. you know he just he, As he you just do. He, and he just accepts it, that and you it, know he doesn't know what's at going at least on. how i read it one possible interpretation is that the whole reason he did that is simply possibly so they could just be around for him to apologize to that he fucked up saving the universe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, that's... Like, yeah, I got you here. I can't do anything about it, but I oh. figure since you were caught up into this, you deserve an explanation and for me to say my bad. Yeah, that, that's funny. Uh, I hadn't considered and, uh, that. And one last thing, and I forgot to mention this earlier, I was going to mention, uh, but... Um... Uh, there's also the uh, uh, post-colonial reading of this, where Jesus represents the West uh, sort of conquering other nations, but this was during the height of Vietnam that this was written, so right. that's a thing. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's I, entirely a way that, that it could be read as well, and another reason why I said that um, Christianity doesn't necessarily have the positive depiction. No. Or the, the sort of default view as positive in Japan and the East as it would be expected to have in the West. Well, that's it for us today. We've been Philip and Adam of the Planetary Development Committee. Joining us was Ing of Nazareth. Our theme song was by the enlightened one, Jack Furyk. Special thanks to Alex Ross of Atlantis. We at What Mad Universe will be back, and it'll be sooner than 10 billion days and 100 billion nights. So long.